don't know if you looked at the Reddit uh, S1 and as they prepare for their S uh, for the IPO. Oh, almost ten percent. Oh, we got Vance here. Look at this. That's such a nice surprise. Vance, what's up, buddy? Sorry, guys. Just got off Bloomberg. You know, doing God's work. Had somewhere more important to be than you know your humble work. <laughs> yeah, little little local TV station called Bloomberg. Not sure if you've heard of it. Hey everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to the Wormhole Foundation. If you are a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. The Wormhole Protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes, including Solana, Sui, Ethereum, Layer 2s, and more. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. You can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link. All right, guys, on with the show. Hey, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Swell, a team leading the restaking future with their liquid restaking token are sweet now i've talked about liquid restaking on this program before i think it's going to be a massive tectonic shift for ethereum and i am super super excited about it and i like the swell team a lot goes without saying do your own research this is not financial advice you guys all know the drill again i like this team and if you stick around i'm going to describe how you can restake your eth in swell earn pearls eigenlayer points and a whole bunch of future rewards so thank you very much for swell for making this episode possible hey everyone wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor flood protocol the optimal dex aggregator. Now, if you are a listener of Bell Curve, you know that MEV is a massive problem, which is why we are so pumped to partner up with Flood on this season. Flood is the only gasless and MEV-free aggregator that not only gets you the best execution, but also gives you back all the extra surplus that you create every single time you swap. Now, this is relevant for both swappers and developers, but you're going to be hearing all about them later in the program. So for now, thank you, Flood, and back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of Bell Curve. Today, you're joined by Michael's one and two, just the two of us pulled down the fort. Michael, how you doing, buddy? You know, doing well, doing well. Uh, getting Denver FOMO. Uh, excited to hear how that's been for the last day. And uh, yeah, you know, we uh, we trim the fat. We just continue forward and uh, better, faster, stronger. Just the two of us. Lead and mean, baby. Lead and mean. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Denver's been great. I I was just telling you off air, but I did get a surprise right when I got here, which is that the Airbnb I'm staying in doesn't have heat. <laughs> how many of you know? Dude, the story about how this happened, though, was so funny. So, you know, like a little while, like 24 hours before you get to an Airbnb, the host's like, hey, here are some details that you need to know for your visit. Here's the lockbox. Go in the back door. Here's the Wi-Fi password. Oh, by the way, there's no heat. <laughs> what? What? You got like, to... You gotta leave with that, my man. You know, you gotta <laughs> like, also, I, I mean, how is it even possible that someone has a house in Denver that doesn't have heat? I don't understand that. It's, it's I, February. <laughs> it's February. It's like 15 degrees out. Yeah, I literally, there's like one space heater in this place that, and it doesn't work. So I dragged into my bedroom last night. I like went to the other bedrooms. I grabbed the blankets there. I slept in oh this and God. I like fetal positioned in the bed, but that's fine. We're and, and if someone's listening to this and still in Denver, someone get Mike a new pair of Yeah, 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 please. Help a brother out. Um, 
I, I'll give you a quick update though on on the conference. So I've only been here for 24 hours, but you know, I was I was expecting a little bit just because we'll, we'll talk a little bit about markets. But I was curious to get the, the overall sentiment and vibe because you know you could this could very well be a period of euphoria. Obviously, with Bitcoin and ETH doing what they're doing right now, it really doesn't feel like that at all. Um, actually, if anything, I talked to a lot of folks who like joined the industry over the last couple of years and they're in this like really fun period where their their faith is basically being affirmed you know so if you're someone who is listening to this and you joined like a couple of years ago right in time for the bear and you were like thinking about leaving like shout out like this is your time and this is actually one of the more fun times to be in your crypto journey um so there's a lot of that there was but it really didn't feel too FOMO-y or anything like that with the exception of two areas i would say uh to a lesser degree, I would say restaking is like really starting to pick up steam. Tons of restaking events, uh, not even just Eigenlayer specifically, but other types of solutions. And I think that's definitely going to get pretty hot. There's a lot of speculation about when token for Eigenlayer, what it's going to come out at in terms of FTV stuff we've uh, maybe briefly touched on, on the show. The area that it does feel like there's a lot of interest and potentially hype is AI. And AI to me, I, I'm actually, yeah, it's... I mean, you see it in the private markets, right, Michael? Like, I, I started hearing this a couple months ago from friends. They were like, yeah, there's like every other round. And then there were the AI rounds. And they're raising 10 times more at a way higher valuation with way less product and all that stuff. And I, my personal take on it is that I think this stuff is actually very real. But it's probably going to take a little bit longer to play out than everyone thinks. But it's shaping up to probably be the hypiest area of this cycle. Maybe similar a little bit to NFTs where last cycle... NFTs were clearly real, but they just ran away so hard. So that's my kind of take. Really? really? NF- NFTs, NFTs, there was an NFT collection that hit almost 100 billion FTV last cycle. I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a good, that's a really good point. Honestly, we're already kind of at, yeah, you're talking about Whirlpoint here, but yeah. This, they were at this point in the cycle where I did this post about how ridiculous that is, and I'm just getting called, <laughs> actually, it's pretty funny, mid curve like. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a pretty funny nickname. Oh, I was like, all right, just getting called mid curvy here for pointing out that this shouldn't be at a hundred billion dollar valuation. But they, uh, they, they got you on your own podcast title. They did. <laughs> uh, I mean, what do you think about that though? So, I, just to further the point, I, I had a, a check in with one of our founders um, who yesterday who started Alora. Which, um, you know, for those that don't know about it, it is, um, it's a new platform for, for AI technology and, and model proliferation. Um, excited about what they're doing. They haven't launched yet. We, we've been, you know, a partner of theirs over the last few years and seen it, all the progress. For, for those that remember it, it's, it's the original Upshot brand that is now, you know, developing its own, <clears throat> developing its own L2 to take the Upshot technology as the first model within the Aurora ecosystem. And uh, Nick was telling me that he made some merch that said um, something, and I'm going to butcher the exact phrase, but like the the first self-healing, self-replicating AI L2. And he was walking around Denver and people were just coming up to him saying, how can I invest? Can I I give you money? (laughs) And it's like, what What is going on here? Um, I think we're, uh, so I think two things are true at the same time. Number one, the excitement and um all the attention i think is warranted um to a certain extent there is real technology here there is real applications that are going to be developed there's really use cases for blockchain technology 
that fit within the AI ecosystem writ large. Um, and to your point, I think we're also probably furthest away from this being real um, in terms of all the other application categories that we're talking about and, you know, that are launching. And, and so, you know, for anyone who can develop something that works right now and something that has applications right now, there's going to be that real attention grabbing, the, the real kind of capital grabbing elements. But I do think that, you know, maybe this is something that when we looked at last cycle or two cycles ago, everybody was investing in alt layer ones kind of at, at the, at the bare, at the bottom. Um, and it took basically another three years for all of that to be realized. And that's kind of what we saw in 2021, the recognition of all of that. And, and so maybe AI is the thing that people invested in, in 22 and 23, and it'll take until 24, 25, 26 for it to actually materialize. Um, so in, ter in terms of sort of like the investment phase, the application phase, and then they sort of like the adoption and recognition phase, I think we're kind of in the like application to adoption phase. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's actually, it's part of the, it's one of the reasons um, that I actually came to Eat Denver this year is to learn more about this because I don't know that much. But from my understanding, there's a couple ways that you can approach it. You probably know more than me, even just from talking to Alora. But, you know, the two, there, there are different layers of the stack where it makes sense to intersect AI and crypto. But the two use cases that people are pretty excited about is agents. So you could consider, like we've talked a little bit about these intent type frameworks where right now a user of crypto, you kind of interface directly with a smart contract or a protocol. We're moving to this world where you actually interface directly with a searcher or a solver or filler, which is really just a market maker. And you could, and then they will do this complicated, you know, cross-chain transactions and just abstract all that away from you. You could imagine a world where you're not actually interfacing with a market maker, you're interfacing with one of these smart AI bots that just does all of that for you. And it makes a lot of sense that for this to be in crypto because it's much more permissionless. These AI bots can just use ETH as money and do all this stuff. Whereas in a in a more trad by type world, there are just way more frictions around that. So there's the agent angle, and then there's the um, decentralizing ownership of the models model. And this is where I, I'm just so early in learning about this. I, I still don't fully understand it. But the way that I would think about it is everyone saw the Gemini images that, that Google has been generating, right? And whatever your politics are, you could probably agree there's definitely a strong bias or worldview. You can say it's a good thing. You can say it's a bad thing, but it's definitely there. And if AI becomes as important as everyone thinks that it's going to be, you probably want it to not reflect the biases of one particular centralized entity, you want it to be a little bit more, the governance structure should be a little bit more distributed. And so I think people are trying to figure out how to do that in crypto form. So, yeah, not, not to make this a total, you know, a AI pod, uh, yeah. we got to sit back to our, uh, our, to our, back to our macro roots here. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I think about it in terms of the value chain, right. And, and it starts at the hardware level. And right now that's, Frankly, why NVIDIA is ripping. That's why OpenAI is going after the $7 trillion raise to build their own fabs, build their own chips. All the things that kind of go into the creation of H100s, A100s, all the, the GPU capabilities to do this actual work. Not to one angle. Yeah, and there's a couple of protocols that are working on how do we democratize access um, based off of you know supply demand marketplace for the actual chips themselves. I think that that's pretty interesting. Frankly, right now, we're just so, uh, the entire world is so supply constrained for these chips and, and these capabilities. That's really hard. Like you, you have Mark Zuckerberg talking about, uh, you know, in a Facebook post about how many chips they're buying from NVIDIA and like that. It is becoming a moat if you have, you know, those assets, those physical assets. 
So, but over time, if you assume that supply kind of catches up with demand, you're going to be able to have a, a sort of decentralized marketplace for that chip uh, capability. That's number one. Number two is their model creation and model proliferation, with, which is exactly what you're talking about. I, I think my personal view is that the jury is still out as to whether or not, you know, private proprietary models retain the value or to your point, if it's going to be more an open source model creation, model generation, and, and the value doesn't accrue necessarily to the model itself. Um, it could be something where, you know, we've talked about this for years, where it's like the Facebook algorithm versus an open source algorithm in terms of what content you see. And everyone would say, oh, well, we don't want the bias of Facebook, or we don't want the bias of, you know, whoever that proprietary company is creating that algorithm and feeding us whatever, whatever content it is that we actually see. And I think about the same way with model creation, it, it, it's possible that, you know, ChatGPT or Gemini, you know, may, they have some biases, but they're also the biggest and they're the ones that are going to get the most trained and, and the ones that are most useful, therefore. Um, and so I, I think we're still in this phase of like, we don't know the value rule for models yet or how that will look and feel. Um, but then there's also the inference side. It, inference side, which is sort of like the output side of the models. And, and I think that's actually probably one of the most interesting. It's like, what can you do with all of this backend and have it applied to something? And there's actually like DeFi protocols that are working on stuff like this right now. I know, you know, Rune has talked about doing um, governance through AI. Um, like there, there's going to be some really interesting applications of this that will touch on, you know, the backends of decentralized compute and decentralized model creation. But the inference side, I think, is is one of the areas that's probably least explored right now. Yeah. And I think one of the things to consider as well on the the value proposition of making it more neutral and more decentralized in terms of ownership than a company that has a bias like Google. Keep in mind, Google owns YouTube, which is one of the largest proprietary data sets that you can feed into an AI algorithm on the planet. Um, and the other thing is, at some level no matter what you're going to have to make decisions about the answers that these things spit out. Like, because as soon as you just to use really extreme examples, right? You don't want on something like Google to be able to search like snuff films or something like that. Right. So as soon as you have uh, that sort of decision, then you're operating on a spectrum of like, someone has to make decisions about where the line exists. Someone's going to have to do that for these AI models as well. And I, I agree with your point about the, the inference level being super interesting. And frankly, I think it's just going to take a really long time for protocols today to experiment with what's actually useful. So, you know, I'm not an expert on this at all. Like, I'm just learning about this too, but my best guess, I think there's going to be a lot of money thrown at this. There are going to be a lot of ideas and manpower thrown at this. Some of it's going to work, a lot of it's not, but I, I would guess we're on like a four or five year timeline here for actually building pretty useful things. Uh, two, two thoughts coming down to that. Number one, so yeah, you're exactly right. The data ingestion is sort of how you define a lot of what that model will say at the end of the day. And that business, I think, is is actually flying kind of under the radar right now. I don't know if you looked at the Reddit uh, S1 as they prepare for their S uh, for their IPO. Oh, almost ten percent. Oh, we got Vance here. Look at this. That's such a nice surprise. Yeah, what's up, buddy? Sorry, guys, just got off Bloomberg, you know, doing God's work. Had somewhere more important to be than, you know, your humble work. <laughs> that little, little local TV station called Bloomberg. Not sure if you've heard of it. Uh, Bridging the good word to the boomers. 
been doing a lot of that recently, both Michael and I, <laughs> reconnecting with our, 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 our boomer friends. Nice. Well, we can, um, sorry. Step, in, step, step into our, step into our AI office. <laughs> thought it was better late than never, but you know. Yeah. Well, last two thoughts on this, Mike. Uh, so number one, Reddit, almost 10% or I think a little bit over 10% of their revenue in the past 12 months has been data selling, basically like selling all of the data that they have in Reddit for AI model generation. I think this becomes, for anyone that has a proprietary data source, this becomes a huge business model. And I think also people, it, it's kind of like when AT&T had the unlimited data plan for the iPhone, they didn't know how to value it because they were like, oh, well, like what are people going to do with data on their phone? Like, the, And then like the app market came out and like all of the different apps became richer, denser. And AT&T was like, okay, kill that. We can't have that. I think we're kind of at that stage of data within AI where all the companies that have proprietary data are like, wait a second, we can make more money just by selling, you know, this stuff that's in our databases and they're totally undervaluing it because that's exactly what is like the most important ingredient into what generates these model output. Can I ask you a question about that? Do you think there is an analogy here to like the more traditional, um, I'm not even sure the word for these types of business, but like the CBSs and the NBCs that used to license their content to Netflix where it was this juicy revenue stream in the short term, but ultimately ended up creating an enormous amount of equity value for Netflix. Um, and then they were able to just vertically integrate their own content studio. I wonder if it could be the same thing for these AI platforms where it's like, hey, give us your data to, to train ourselves on. But then we can create so much that we don't, you become sort of commoditized. Do you think there's a... Well, it depends on, I mean, you have to keep the data fresh. And the reason why Reddit is so interesting is because you can continue to have that refresh rate really high with, you know, all the different subreddits and the moderators continuing the conversation. And so you have to, that element is important, but if you're talking about a look back, it's like, who wants to buy, you know, the rights to, to every single previous news article or publication, blah, blah, blah. It, but it's not relevant if you're trying to get, you know, ChatGPT or, or Gemini to be up to date with, you know, what happened last week. So what I was thinking about was, I actually remember, uh, do you guys ever watch 30 Rock, the show? This is a silly, stupid reference, but remember uh, Seinfeld Vision, where Alec Baldwin's character, Jack Donaghy, uh, because they own so much IP around Seinfeld that they could just get Jerry Seinfeld to say anything that they wanted in every TV show. It was a funny, it was just a funny plot. But actually, here's something pretty cool. I don't know if you guys are ABBA fans, but in the UK, in London right now, there, dude, this exists. No. You can, you can go. Oh, I love ABBA, dude. You can go and they are holographic performances of ABBA. They, they like you will go and they just projected these four people and it's like a live concert with ABBA in their prime. And apparently it's awesome. And so I do wonder if there's kind of like a, there's a need to, to stay current with uh, sources like Reddit or something like that. But there could be these weird niche use cases where you can do a one-off data set and then produce something super valuable like that. But maybe you don't need all, all of this. All of this is to say, like, we're, we're the starting gun has been fired, but we're at, yeah. the, at the very start of the race. Yeah. Maybe that's a good transition. Speaking of starting guns being fired, let's talk a little bit about the lame. We, we crashed up. We crashed up. 
We crashed out. The market yeah. crashed out. Hey everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to the Wormhole Foundation. If you are a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. The Wormhole Protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes, including Solana, Sui, Ethereum, Layer 2s, and more. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. You can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link. All right, guys, on with the show. Hey, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Swell, a liquid restaking protocol and the issuer of the RSweeth liquid restaking token. Now, if you're a listener of Bell Curve, you know that I am just so fascinated by restaking and liquid restaking. I think it is going to be one of the most important trends in Ethereum, and I am really excited for the benefit that it unlocks both users and also Ethereum, the protocol itself. Now, disclaimer, whenever there's yield involved in a product, do your own research. This is not financial advice. You guys know the drill, but Swell is a great team. They have a non-custodial product, and they are mission-driven on giving you the best liquid staking experience. If you take one benefit away from using liquid restaking, make it be capital efficiency. Now you can earn passive yield from Ethereum. You can earn yield from multiple actively validated services that stack on top of that. And then you can still use our suite as collateral in DeFi. And because I know y'all are a bunch of DGENs, there's a points angle here as well. But in Swell, we call them pearls. So pearls equal points. And if you stake your ETH with Swell, you can earn pearls and future eigenlayer rewards. And when there's a token generation event, you can swap your pearls for Swell tokens. Head over, click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, just pause what you're doing right now. Go click the link at the bottom of this episode. Check out Swell. Thank you later. Hey everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Flood Protocol, the Optimal Dex Aggregator. Now, Flood is the perfect partner for this episode on the multi-chain future because Flood is solving so many of the issues that we're going to be talking about this season. And this is relevant for both traders and devs. So if you are a trader, you should definitely head over to FloodSwap and start trading because they solve three massive problems. One, gasless trading. No more pesky trading fees. Two, you don't have to worry about getting front run. MEV free. And then three, they have excellent order routing so that you know that you are getting the best price. So head over to FloodSwap and click the link in the bottom of the show notes. We're going to send you right there. For the devs out there, you can leverage Flood's flexible hooks, allowing you to make swapping a first-class primitive by adding custom order types like TWAPs. Or if you're a wallet builder or something like that, you can actually build your own order flow auction in and start recapturing a bunch of that MEV. If you want to reach out to them, go to devs at flood.bid or just jump right in the Discord. All right, guys. Thanks very much. Appreciate you, Flood. Big price action this week. I was Bitcoin is now trading somewhere around 63K, you know, up over... I think in the last couple of days, Bitcoin's up over 10,000 ETH following, Solana following, uh, and people are feeling pretty pretty excited. Obviously, we're flirting with all-time highs. I actually just saw Bitcoin uh, is at an all-time high in terms of market cap. We have more supply than we did last time. Um, and it, I, I guess a question that I would have for you guys is, do you think retail is... This is a big question that people within crypto circles like to ask, like, is retail coming back? There's a great... Here, I'll pull it up actually, but there's a great bot that actually just tracks where Coinbase is in the app store. And they'll tweet out like every six hours or something like that, where it is. And it's been pretty aggressively climbing the ranks. And anecdotally, I, I haven't had people reach out to me this entire time about crypto, but I'm just starting to get like <laughs> friends and acquaintances, those first early texts. So just, would just be curious about what you guys make of this market action and whether or not retail is sort of returned. Let, let, me, let me tell you something. You know what the boomers see? They don't even know that the price of Bitcoin is like 63,000. All they see is that IBIT is making new all-time highs every single day. 
Mm. Well, in the world of, of boomers, Bitcoin is $33 a piece. You know, they're already at an all-time high. Like the bull run has which already... Is, which, is, which is the price of, of the of Black Rock. Yeah. 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 Just to be clear. So, I mean, also the other thing I'll say is like every other currency on the planet, Bitcoin is now at a new all-time high. Um, so the boomers and all these other countries are living in, in the future. It's like crypto people who haven't broken the all-time high in USD yet. So it's funny. It's great to see. Yeah. And to give everyone a sense of you know, what inflows are doing, I mean, these at the volume, uh, I think actually yesterday, Eric Balkunas tweeted out that IBIT, the iShares you know, BlackRock ETF, had more volume than QQQ, which is bananas. Which, uh, which is absolutely crazy. Yeah. All of the, that's the most popular NASDAQ ETF. That's Fox. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's what I should say. Yeah. <laughs> the NASDAQ ETF. We yeah. beat the NASDAQ. And, and one other thing is like the, like, you know, there's news that Morgan Stanley and UBS are going to approve these things. And like all of the other national prime brokerage accounts and warehouses are like still kind of dragging their feet. Like UBS has a, or Morgan Stanley has like a 90 day product approval thing that apparently has been cut to 45 because people are just, you know, fighting and clawing and asking their advisors for this product. So, you know, it's like somebody said one to 3% of all assets are going to be in crypto from these RAs. It's 150 billion of money. How, how does that work? How do you, how do you put that into crypto? Like we, again, we, we've said this before, but like we bought nine figures of crypto over the past few years and it's actually hard to get the coins um, on a, on a mechanical level. And, you know, people are offering us like, I, it was four percent to lend out out our Bitcoin overnight, like four weeks ago. Now it's up to fifteen percent, and that's that lending market is driven by you know you have the ETF inflows on like call it Thursday, and like they can't figure out how to buy coins or they don't have balance sheets, so they like borrow Bitcoin theoretically from us if we let them, and then they'd give it back to us the next day. But it's like a repo market, and it's just like an indication of how tight this market has become. And think of what happens if like that 150 billion is real. And think of what happens if like the ETH ETF happens, um, which we think it will, at least this year. Um, that's pretty wild to think about. This is the difference between any prior cycle. We never had Larry Fink buying 85,000 Bitcoin in the past 20 trading days. Well, and and the other thing too is like that money that goes in, it's a black hole. It's not, it's not going to be, it doesn't look like it's going to be anything that is flighty, especially given, you know, both the Morgan Stanley's, the UBS's, when you're talking about getting, and, and the other one too is Fidelity has gone across all of their sort of like target allocations. I don't know if you guys saw this chart too. It was like 60, 40 mm -hmm. stocks is what they've been, uh, you know, assessing previously. Now it's like 60, 40 or whatever it is, 59, uh, 38, three. And the three is crypto. And it's across all of their different platforms. They have one to three percent allocation, and and what I'm meaning with that specifically is, if you have one to three percent allocation into those types of funds, that money is going in. But that's a retirement account that's not changing. It's not like they're you know rebalancing and changing it and you know all, all of the above. So I, I think you know we also have the inflows, but we also have the sedentary nature of what those inflows mean. Mm. So just to give folks a sense, by the way in terms of order of magnitude how when we say flows how much are we talking about yesterday it was record flow day for 
the newborn nine or the Kentucky Derby or what, what James and Eric are calling this these new uh, these new ETFs. But IBIT took in alone six hundred and twelve million. The net uh, for the entire group was six hundred and seventy three million, which is a record. And that's despite a pretty big outflow day from GBTC at two hundred and sixteen million. So yeah, these are real dollars coming in here. I, I've got two questions for you guys about this. Maybe just to add some context for folks in the audience who are listening. We talked about this a little bit before, but there's a, a bit of a debate going on about you know who, where this money is actually coming from. Is it from hot money hedge funds or these RIAs? And the other question that I had for you guys is, do you think this is around the time where people say this is all going to go into Bitcoin? But I do wonder as well, especially if coins are really scarce, if some of this ends up bleeding over into something like Coinbase, like crypto equities or miners or Ethereum or alts in crypto, like what does the spillover look like? And maybe to just frame that first question of about who's actually uh, investing in the, or buying these ETFs. One thing I did to last, to, since the last time we talked, I talked to a buddy of mine who works at Galaxy and his take was it actually takes a little while for these like wirehouses and everything to get set up. And he actually didn't think it was mostly RAs that were, were buying these for the, for the time being, but so I think probably there is a really good argument to be made that it is the hedge fund community, but I'm just, I don't really know that that really matters very much. Like the, the, the groundwork has been laid at this point that from Fidelity and uh, BlackRock and others, I don't think it's just going to take a little while. I just think it's kind of a meaningless question to even be asking, to be honest with you. Well, it, it, it's not meaningless in terms of, you know, who's the net buyer right now. I think that that's kind of a relevant question. I just think that that net buyer profile changes in like what we're talking about the next 45, you know, 60 days. Yeah. Because, you know, the, I, I think you're probably right. Like the, the people that are buying and have been buying now are, are basically the, the people who are front running what they know is impending, which mm -hmm. is all the people who are watching this happen and not able to access it. The Morgan Stanley's, the UBS's, the RAA platforms. Uh, <clears throat> I think last week, Hunter Horsley had a tweet saying that Carlson, which is a uh, $30 billion RIA platform based in Omaha, like they just added it to their platform. Like you're going to have to clip off these like tens of billions of dollar RIAs one at a time. And then they add it to their platform. They add the allocation, you know, weighting and, and then they start to buy in. And so I think it's the, the more liquid, the more, um, the quicker who are able to buy it now. <clears throat> but the people, the, the number one thing that we have seen in terms of, you know, market psychology is when markets go up, people want to invest and and maybe it's not the smartest people but it's the people who are more you know following the markets only because the price action is, is happening so price action but yet more price action i think the the fastest moving are in right now the people who are watching on the sidelines are the ones who are going to be buying and holding and they're they're coming and and, and frankly this price action will pull more of that second category in because they're excited and and want to get in as well i agree with that I mean, Balchunas did this analysis of the like the uh, individual trades. Mm -hmm. He's like, there's you know a bunch at you know that are like one to ten million dollar tickets. Maybe those are funds. Maybe those are you know high net worths. Whatever. Uh, there's a bunch that are like a hundred k, and then there's like a ton that are like a thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars. And I mean, I think it's people like my mom and dad. Who, who, you know, my, my, my dad has been holding ETH since, uh, I think 140 he used to hate crypto and I just got him to buy ETH. And, and now that he's up a bunch, he's like really pilled. Um, and now he's like looking at all these products and he's saying, you know, like, wh why not? And when you're making daily all time highs, 
that's a pretty compelling marketing message. Um, so I think it's true what you said, you know, most of the RAs and wirehouses don't have access to this product. That is like even crazier to me. Like, what are we going to see in terms of daily net inflows? If we're already at a billion dollars, is it going to be like $10 billion? Like we're already at a million Bitcoin per year pace. There's only 1.9 million BTC across all these exchanges. Yeah. Unless we start rehypothecating coins, like I, there's just not going to be enough to go around. Yeah. Okay. So that begs the question. I was just, I was just having this debate yesterday with a, a buddy, but do you think, cause this is around the time where, and you're already starting to hear these arguments where Bitcoin, this cycle is going to be different. Bitcoin is going to outperform everything because it has these ETFs. And this argument was made last cycle too, right? It's like money printer go burr meme only applies to Bitcoin. And that's where all the liquidity is going to flow. But we all know that Bitcoin did really well last cycle, but it underperformed all these other assets. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, especially maybe Vance and Michael, to your guys' point, if Bitcoin ends up becoming really scarce, I feel like one thing where I've seen people consistently get this wrong is they're just going to drive that infinitely higher, whereas they look for alternatives. Maybe that's ETH, maybe that's Coinbase and the miners, maybe that's other things. But ultimately, that money that wants to speculate ends up pouring out into other assets. And I want to get your guys' perspective about, do you think that's going to happen similarly this time? Or, or how would you be thinking about that dynamic? I think the question is between ETH and Bitcoin. Like, I, I think broadly, if you have all of these flows, um, they matter, like financial gravity matters of, of you know, the buying pressure. Um, there is a wealth effect, like in crypto fund managers, if Bitcoin's at 100K, you know, and they're looking at like L1 blockchains at like two or three billion, like they're going to do that math pretty quickly and rotate. Um, but Bitcoin probably goes higher than people think. Um, like Fundstrat has a target of 150K this year um, and people are ragging on him for that. But like, look, I mean, something's got to give if they're buying this much crypto at the end of the day. Um, but I think the real question is ETH. Um, it's a much smaller asset. Uh, there's 12, or I guess there's 11 million ETH on exchanges today. So there's even less ETH available than Bitcoin. Um, and if you see even a fraction of the inflows from, or, you know, from Bitcoin, or if there's like a 50-50 ETH Bitcoin ETF, or if the ETH ETF is popular, um, and a lot of Wall Street trading houses are already shelling this as like their, their trade. Like, you know, uh, I, I think it's, that is the question of like, do these flows matter you know, five or 10 times as much for ETH than they do for Bitcoin, because Bitcoin's going to be a lot bigger by the time the ETH ETF gets approved. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just think all the models are broken to, to quote Michael Saylor. Um, like how high this goes. Uh, I mean, Michael and I have recently kind of like recalibrated just based on the ETFs alone. Um, I don't think even the wildest expectation for Bitcoin flows. Uh, this is beyond that, you know, pre-ETF versus post-ETF. So we'll see. Um, the other thing about ETH is like, it's all locked up in restaking and staking and DeFi and NFTs and bridges and all this stuff. Bitcoin doesn't really have that. And so, you know, like there's just a lot less of it and their flows are probably going to be higher than its pro rata share of its market cap relative to Bitcoin. Mm. I'm not sure this really matters either in terms of where Bitcoin's price is going to trend. But one thing that I just like a lot about what's happening in Bitcoin right now is there's a little bit of a renaissance in terms of building new tech on top of it and being more open-minded than I think people have been in a long time. 
And there's a little bit of an investing angle here because, you know, when you have these things like ordinals and the BitVM, et cetera, you're packing more transactions onto the blockchain that's directly relating to more uh, or translating into more revenue for miners. But just as someone who's really loved Bitcoin for a long time, it was kind of frustrating for me to see this sort of pretty religious uh, kind of laser-eyed crew really take over the dialogue and it made me less interested in it for a little while. But it's been cool to see that there's a lot, there's a real resurgence in terms of open-mindedness and pushing the boundary in terms of innovation. And yeah, it's happening in a pretty cool way. So not that that really matters for the overall, but I think it's cool at least. The, the, the other thing I'll, I'll say is like, um, it, it does feel like the Ordinals people had a moment as the main narrative of Bitcoin, but now it's mm. like TradFi. And I think that's like, kind of interesting TradFi is just buying all the coins it's kind of sad too because like all the ogs are maybe selling their coins or you know the coins are maybe you know just sitting on exchange but like TradFi is going to take most of this run upwards if we're starting it if we started at 45k and it goes to 250 or whatever like TradFi is taking most of this run so so the meta narrative that I think applies to this is not necessarily TradFi being the, the victor here, but TradFi changing its tone in terms of the entire industry. And one of yeah. the things that happened this happened this week, I, I know we all saw it, was a changing, uh, almost a, a complete about face of Elizabeth Warren. And her talking about how she wants to start working with the industry so long as everybody follows rules. And it's like, you know, people don't forget you wanted to start a crypto army. And and uh, or she did. Crypto, she did start a crypto <laughs> army. It's just the wrong, <laughs> yeah. wrong side. But <clears throat> I I do think that yeah exactly. Here we go. Um, well, the, the one of the one of the the meta narratives about TradFi winning in this Bitcoin gambit right now is that we're going to get them on our side. And I think this is you know Mike and I were talking about this before. But this is one of, you know, I, I think the um, the trends that is becoming more and more obvious. And frankly, one of the reasons why everyone is getting excited about things like the Uniswap fee switch. You know, the, the, the trends of regulatory wins for this industry are, are heading more positively now that we're seeing success within a collaboration between the crypto industry and the TradFi people. Yeah, I would I would say just, just a couple notes here as well on. So I actually have the um, sort of fortunate or unfortunate experience i've been hosting podcasts for a long time i actually started the first podcast i was hosting on the margin in like march of 2021 so all of my views are like on the record at that time and i will say a lot of those views do not hold up particularly well with what ended up playing out that cycle so like this is the time to have fun you know it really doesn't get better than this particular span of time before it gets like totally ludicrous we're winning you know all this stuff is trending in the right direction but also like I don't know, just because last time I lost my head a little bit, you know, keep your head on the swivel, right? Nothing, nothing has changed too much. Like, I, I would just urge like, like a little bit of what, 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 Damn, what, bro, what, what happened, happened to you? Yeah. What dude. happened? I, you want to talk I mean, about it? No. I, yeah, dude, I had some dumb takes. I like, I mean, so, honestly. So did we. So did we. Yeah, we all do, right? I mean, it's part of the fun. Right? It's part of the fun of going through this. Gaming but. was going to happen in 2022. But gaming, but you guys were just a little bit early on that. I mean, that feels like we were talking about AI is kind of the next narrative. I mean, I don't know. I feel like gaming is, we, we had Robbie on. I've gotten much more bullish since that, that episode. <laughs> do we have another hour to talk about gaming? Because I do. I know. I, yeah, he is a killer. And I, I, I think gaming's going to be huge this year. But to, to just call out like Warren here, we're, we're looking at this article and it's just funny that she says this. It's, 
you know, I want to collaborate with the industry. What I don't understand is why the industry seems to be saying that they, the only way they can survive is there's plenty of space for drug traffickers and human traffickers, oh, and terrorists and ransomware scammers. You know, you don't want to, she doesn't want to collaborate with this industry. She literally, it was the title you guys were referring to. I'm building an anti-crypto army. How does that say collaboration? That doesn't say collaboration. It, it, this, this is this is the equivalent of Gary Dancer being like, come in and register. We're, we're open for business. We saw how that yeah. worked. Yeah, it's I mean, frustrating. So so weird that we don't like her, given that she just tried to kill our industry for the past four years. It's like I know. Look, like if we we've gotten approximately zero bones thrown to us by the Democratic Party, like this shouldn't be a mystery as to why we don't want to work with you. Yeah. All of the rules that you've put forward are not workable. And I actually come. I grew up in Massachusetts. I like Liz Warren. Like there was a period of time where I really liked her. I thought she had a really rational, like she did a good job. And I know you guys laugh, but she did a good job in Massachusetts before all this. And now, yeah, I'm just totally flipped on it. And you, you know, I was sitting next to I I don't want to blow his spot up, but a guy from Coinbase um, on the flight over here. And he was describing, you know, interacting with regulators and well, actually, I don't know if I want to get into the story, but basically these people do have a really good understanding of, of the technologies they're regulating. But there are really, I'm not sure our interests are fully aligned. I think they will be in the in the long arc of time. But yeah, I mean, uh, listen, they're 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 from from the way that the Democratic Party or or frankly like any government official purports itself to be uh, wanting uh, fair markets to have open transparency, egalitarian ecosystem, like all the things that are literally the tech and ecosystems that we're building are should be represented by what they're talking about. It's just that there are ulterior motives at play. And they, they put up a good facade to be able to win elections. But in reality, there's there's stuff that's deeper that's going on. Mm. I, I do feel like it's shifting, though, with the Fed coming out positive on stable coins. Like, it's also an election year. And I think this bleeds into crypto where it's like, look, crypto is popular, no matter what you think, like a lot of people own it, 70, 80 million Americans. Um, like it feels like a lot of the pace of the enforcements and the court cases have slowed. At least like, that's kind of my perspective. Um, the Bitcoin ETF, obviously a step in the right direction, but like if crypto keeps ripping, I think it's really hard to be, it's easy to be bearish or like, you know, like, crack the whip regulatorily wise on an asset class that's like fucking imploding like when it, like people forget but 2021 they were kind of positive on the space 2022 when we blew everything up they were like all right let's go after these people but now it feels like we're kind of in up only mode and i don't know how much room politically there is to be trying to rain on that parade basically that's my thought process, at least. And I think that will influence things like the ETTF decision, um, not not the Coinbase court case, because that's like in the court of law. But um, like there's there's a lot of levers that this type of positive price action and environment can can pull. I agree. And I think it's a I think Matt Levine actually wrote a really great article about this. But you can think about it from the perspective of a regulatory agency. There's sometimes demand for them to do their job, like when coins are going down and everyone feels like they lost a lot of money they know they've got public opinion on their side so they're going to do everything they can to get that through but when prices are going up and everyone's making money there's just not much political appetite out there to crack down on on an asset that people are liking and holding so i agree with you that's i think it's a good perspective 
It's so much fun thinking about how much coke Ben McKenzie and Jim Bianco have right now. I I know Jim. I, I I you know I like Jim a lot, and he's he's been constructive on this space for a while. He's twisted himself into an intellectual pretzel. <laughs> <laughs> like, bro, stop stop tweeting, stop shooting. They're not, they're not going in. Yeah, did you see Citro- uh, Citron Citron? Uh, yeah, it's a true research. These people yeah. short, short coin, long BTC. What yeah. are you talking about? Yeah, this is the best. TradFi will see it as a class like crypto ripping, and they'll do things like short tether and like pay funding to to do that. Maybe just sharing um, what I did this week. Uh, so I was at this, I was at this uh, pension fund conference, two day pension fund conference in Austin, yes. and you know, uh, really re- a really great conference put on by great people. Um, they have like a crypto specific one that they do kind of like once a year and, you know, it's, it's like well attended. Uh, but this one was the like overall, you know, we did like, there's like private credit, there's long only, there's long short, there's, uh, energy, there's, you know, all real estate, there's all the asset classes and then there's crypto and, you know, crypto, crypto, me and Hasib did a panel at eight uh, 30 in the morning. We got a half hour, you know, everyone's like drinking coffee and eating danishes. Um, it was, it was well attended, but like the crypto people only got a half hour and this is like a two day thing. Um, and you know, like a lot of the, uh, the younger people who work at these pension funds and like the more tech savvy ones had meetings with them. Like they're like super receptive to it. Um, but the vast majority are extremely skeptical and, you know, we did like a show of hands in the audience, like who has uh, exposure via crypto fund or, you know, like owns crypto on the balance sheet of the pension fund or whatever maybe 10 percent, maybe um those people will have to chase at some point as well because like if you miss the birth of a new asset class like and you're like a strategic like you know you have like you've got like scholarships that you need to pay for and like you know people's fucking pensions that you know are need to be paying like if you miss a new asset class i think you're probably you know going to get fired at some point um, and so it's just, it's like, it's starting to come around, but these people are not like, they don't even know what the price of Bitcoin is basically. I, I think that this is, you know, it, it's dual wielding what you're kind of talking about, Vance, which is both on the LP perspective, as well as the GP perspective. If you are a crypto GP and you're under allocated to liquid crypto over the last six months, it's going to be a really tough ride. And if you're an LP and your job is to find new emerging alternative managers and new asset classes to, to your points, it's going to be a really tough ride. And, and you have no crypto, it's going to be a really tough ride. And there are, you know, and, and we've talked to a number of them, um, but there are a number of major uh, endowments, foundations, institutions that most people would know the names of who have actively said, listen, we're going to wait one or two fund cycles to be able to see how this industry matures oops, you know, we missed 2021, but good, we missed FTX, like that's great. And now they're coming back in. So there are people who are, you know, re-engaging at, at like a very high level. And I mean, broadly, the smartest ones are the ones that are going to be the first to do so. But that's kind of the other signal that I think we've been picking up as well, which is the excitement around smart LPs investing in smart managers is back. And I, we're, we're kind of at that point where it used to be like, ooh, like going to have to stick my neck out at, at our IC to be able to invest in this crypto manager. Now it's more like if we miss crypto again, we're going to be in trouble. Mm. You know what I think, maybe just have a little bit of a contrarian opinion 
it's, it's actually good that LPs take the time to build a conviction in this because the worst thing you can do, like how many times have you guys seen this from retail or professional investors alike? You, you know, you wait, you don't buy during the bear. It breaks out on the all time high. You finally are like, all right, I'm just going to close my eyes and buy and you don't build any conviction and then you buy the all time high and just sell it as soon as it dips. I mean, how long does that, how many times have you guys seen that play out? So many times. So yeah. many, all the time. So and then, you know, they buy ETH at 4,000, then it goes to 1,000 and they can't get approval for their IC to back up the truck. Right. So, and, and they're just sitting there with that ETH. It's like, I can't. Sucks. You got to help yourself. I mean, and, and equivalently on the LP side, you know, for all these managers, you know, foundations in Dallas, et cetera, who missed funds one, two, and three potentially for these different uh, firms, it's going to be hard for them to get allocation to fund four. Like that, that's the other sentiment too. I mean, if you're not in already, you're going to have to build relationships and hope that you can get in inside in, in a size that matters for you. And, and so there is a risk on the LP side for missing out on these, you know, ups and downs as well, because you haven't built relationships with managers that are going to perform. Totally. And it's not, it's not a massive world of super sophisticated managers in crypto. You guys know that better than, better than most. <laughs> no, there's less than a handful. There's less, yeah. but like what it, what is good is that like, you know, most of the fund managers that are like good are like kind of on their fourth funds now. And so you have like track record and you have like, you know, you can tell that, you know, they have their reputations intact and they didn't do anything sketchy with like internal politics or dynamics or like, you know, there's all these things that just over time you can get a read on. Um, and even two years ago, and Matt, like, remember all the crypto funds that launched two years ago? Mm, yeah. Like hundreds. Like, how do you decide between those? Um, but now it's kind of starting to shake out where just like traditional hedge funds and ventures, like you have kind of like the five or 10 name brands that are, you know, somewhere between like a safe pair of hands, but also like extraordinarily risk on and, and crypto savvy. Yeah. Well, so I, I mean, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of, there will be some new fund managers who make their career on this cycle. There'll be some some people who lose their head and blow up. All the same fun stuff that happened last time. I'm sure we'll we'll get another dosage of. But yeah, this. I guess if you're, especially if you've made it. Just I had this conversation with a buddy of mine who he literally started at a at a protocol that you guys would know the name of two years ago, right during the the absolute peak. And I've been talking to him recently. He's like, I'm not sure. He's like, we're treading, going inside, and I was like buddy just stick it out and i saw him here yesterday and we were both like let's go and it was just a great you know <laughs> you made it brother let's go you oh, made it. yeah so it's it just nice and so if that also applies to you congratulations uh this is definitely the fun part so pretty rich pretty rich baby um i thought i gotta run but this was a fun Peace. one later Hey everyone, Mike here. If you're a bell curve listener, you know that transferring assets across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That is why we're incredibly excited to have teamed up with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Take you, get your free NFT.